We live at a time in which we have the technology to easily gather information about people thousands of miles away, the ability to significantly influence their lives, and the scientific knowledge to work out what the most effective ways of helping are. For those reasons, few people who have ever existed have had so much power to help others as we all embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 211 of Embrace the Void, where we keep applying ethics, but the itching won't go away. I am your host, Aaron, and this week... We're doing a voidy human interest story with a philosophical twist. So let's get personal. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Alex Arnett, a longtime personal friend of the show and a proud member of the North Carolina contingent of our ironic cult. Alex, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, Void. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on, and I'm glad that we're going to be talking about something other than your persistent desires for me to set up a proper uh, in-person compound. But I think what we've got will be suitably entertaining for folks. It's going to be a little different than some of our episodes, but I think it'll actually tie into a lot of them in interesting ways. So first of all, Alex, do you want to let folks know just a little bit about like you know before we get into your applied ethics deep dive? You know, tell folks a little bit about yourself philosophically, anything that you feel like is important for someone who's trying to understand where you're coming from as a person? Yeah, absolutely. To start with, I'm just a guy. I'm a podcast Mm -hmm. listener. Like you said, I've been listening to Embrace the Void and your other show, Philosophers in Space, since the beginning, basically. But Horrifying thought. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. But essentially, I've been trying to get more involved find a way to put my ethics into action. And one of the things that led me to do is I recently donated a kidney. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you donated some amount of kidney. So it's an entire kidney to, I believe, a total stranger, right? Is that That's correct? right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. You do have two whole kidneys and I donated one of them, uh, okay. lefty. This is certainly the sort of like behavioral ethics that I could only hypothesize about as a philosopher ethicist. It is to me, obviously, I think a morally praiseworthy act. And, you know, I think it'd be very boring, obviously, just to bring you on and just shower you with praise for an hour about it. So what we're going to do, of course, is talk about the sort of voidy nuts and bolts of your kind of experience. So I want to like work through it in order here a little bit. What was the like, where did the ideation come from? Like, what it got it in your mind to sign up specifically? Of all the, the ways to put your ethics into action, why sign up for a donation registry? And, like, what was the process of that like to some extent? Yeah, absolutely. So I first got the idea for this type of kidney donation, which I think we can get into the specifics of it here in a minute. But mm-hmm. I first heard about this type of altruistic donation through other podcasts. Uh, I believe the Freakonomics radio podcast was the first place I heard about it. The Vox Network has a effective altruism podcast called Future Perfect. And one of their hosts, mm-hmm. Dylan Matthews, is also a kidney donor. And he put his personal experience out there. Those are definitely where the seeds of the idea came from for me. And I do just want to say, yeah, the point of me being on here is not to pat myself on the back. I see it more as wanting to pay it forward. 
and maybe have one additional audience that can hear this type of story. Mm -hmm. I'm also, yeah, I'm in favor of promoting that. I'm also here to dissect you psychologically, so... (laughs) (laughs) great i'm excited yeah so i first got it in my head that this was something that i could do and would like to do four almost five years ago some things came up in my personal life the the biggest of them being that i had a daughter in that time and one of the recovery things is that you can't lift anything more than 10 pounds for six weeks so it was kind of like that's out as long as my daughter is young Mm -hmm. once we started getting into 2020, I was actually literally filling out a whiteboard of long-term life goals. And I hit a point where I was like, you know, my daughter's old enough now. I think I could do this. 2020 has been an absolute shit year and I need to start making some good in the world. And that's Mm -hmm. really what led me to get serious about it again. That's really interesting. As you're sort of introspecting about that, do you have a sense of like the fidelity of your sort of analysis of your own like motivations here and like to what extent do you feel like those motivations are really being driven by your sort of ethical philosophical beliefs well trust me nobody thinks more about that than i do i Mm -hmm. i spend a lot of time in my own head about it but uh i'm gonna go ahead and cop out early and just say i i do subscribe to primarily utilitarian ethics and so at some level who gives a shit? You know, the outcome is good, but I, mm-hmm. I want to believe That's I fair. did it for the right reason. And, and if there are other benefits to it, you know, that's great. But well, I guess what I would say is even from a utilitarian perspective, I'm curious, you know, like how much does moral education or, you know, teaching someone to think about these moral questions that like the very common question in normative ethics how much of what we're doing actually impacts behavior like do people actually change their beliefs because they hear a, a you know a lecture about animal rights or something like that um is a kind of interesting mm-hmm. open question i think you know to some extent people do um but i was just curious if like for yourself um you know what level of like opacity do you experience when you're trying to determine am i doing this you know for those reasons or like you know is this like a midlife crisis or something like it could be any number of other possible explanations right right absolutely um and i i think it would be impossible to to determine that there was a single driving force between behind all of this um Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm in a crisis. I'll mention also, uh, as part of the entire medical screening prior to donation, part of that is a psychological evaluation. So mm-hmm. I was at least able to seem not crazy for an hour for that evaluation. Okay. Uh, but I, I will say, on top of just the immediate benefits of someone out there has a kidney now that didn't have mm-hmm. a working one before, I did see it as an opportunity. You know, I think about the question you mentioned a lot too. I'm not the only person listening to these philosophy podcasts. Does it drive people to action? And part of Mm -hmm. what I want to do here by coming on is say, uh, let it drive you to action. You know, let me be Mm -hmm. an example of how it should. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts there a little bit more of the the process. So you you sign up for... How easy is how easy is it first of all to sign up for the registry, and then like what's the screening process prior to like you know you getting the call essentially? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do want to take one step back and just talk a little bit about okay. what exactly I was donating into, uh, because okay. it wasn't quite as simple as my kidney going in another person. The end. Uh, so what it was. What I was donating into is what's called a kidney paired exchange program, which is where you have someone that's in need of a kidney and they already have someone in their life who's willing to donate a kidney to them. But for whatever reason, they're not a match by blood type or antibodies, any of those things. But the person's Mm -hmm. still willing to donate. Uh, So people join these registries in pairs. And then the registry... uh, compares profiles across those groups. And when they find a pair, Mm -hmm. you know, the donor from pair A will donate to recipient B and the donor from recipient B 
will donate to A. So they form those cross matches. So it's, it, it's sort of motivating and that additional... can be as easy as an A to B swap. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So you can have a direct swap where it's just back and forth. Uh, it could be a long circle of people, A to B to C, and C goes back to A, that kind of thing. Uh, or mm -hmm. in the case of what I did, because I didn't need a kidney in return, we formed what's called a chain. So I donated a kidney to someone in Minnesota. Then they had a friend or family waiting who donated a kidney, and it flew to Chicago, went in someone else there. Uh, then there was another donor there in Chicago that flew to San Diego, and then one went from San Diego to San Francisco. So it was an entire chain of four donations that all happened in a single day uh, that got kicked off wow. by me. Um, but there huh. there were an incredible number of moving parts and all of that. So that, that's really interesting. Obviously, the goal there is to incentivize um, more sort of people getting into the registry in that kind of way. And then there's like a potential sort of cost benefit trade off there, right, where because it has all those moving parts, like maybe the, you know, like, like if you don't have that right matchup at the right time, then like the chain doesn't happen or something like that. Do they, did you think at all or talk at all with them about like um, this model versus other kinds of, of donation based models? So I, as I told you, I was kind of inspired listening to other podcasts and other people's stories. It was mm -hmm. that type of, uh, donation model that got me interested in it. Gotcha. When I was going through the process of getting screened, they did actually let me know, like, hey, we have someone here in the hospital that needs a kidney. Um, mm -hmm. And I did kind of make <laughs> the uh, the cold utilitarian calculus and say, I, what I would like to do is start a donor chain hmm. and create more net donations, even though I was working directly with the kidney donation program at my local hospital and they mm -hmm. had someone in need of a kidney and a kidney did not go to any of the kidney patients that they had there at the hospital were you convinced by like some specific data about like how this model tends to produce you know x x number more donations or something like that it does generate a large number of donations. Uh, mm -hmm. Another thing that is interesting about kidney donation specifically is it takes a long time to die of kidney disease. Folks spend, mm -hmm. you know, months and years on dialysis, which is painful and draining for uh, the individual suffering from the kidney disease and then also the caretakers mm -hmm. in their lives. Um, so in one sense, the, the need is not as urgent, but also you have the opportunity to wait for the best possible match. There is data out there, for instance, that uh, receiving a kidney from a living donor mm -hmm. has a far greater success rate than a kidney coming from a deceased donor. It's hmm. also the case that the matches in these paired donation programs tend to be stronger matches just because they can be selective across all those different matching characteristics mm -hmm. and instead of a situation where you're saying the kidney is definitely coming from this person and going into this person and we're going to take what we can get. So there's a incentive there then for like not waiting until, you know, you die in a car accident or something like that to have your, like a lot of people I think are pro organ donation these days. But what you're saying is that like, there is an added benefit in terms of increased quality of life or survivability or something like that for individuals if they are getting these donations like prior to that kind of trauma. That's right, exactly. And mm -hmm. from what I was told by the surgical team, as they are taking a, like my kidney and putting it in this new person, literally as they are connecting the arteries and the veins, it's already working and creating, you know, the, the mm -hmm. kidney's job in the body, it filters the blood and it creates urine. So they said literally as we are hooking it up on the table, it's already creating urine. And mm -hmm. the, one of the kind of funny things is, of uh -huh. course, I woke up from the surgery feeling like I had just gone through a major surgery. Yeah. But they said oftentimes folks will wake up uh, 
from receiving a kidney and feel better than they have in months or years. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the system's actually working. That's mm-hmm. I, I will I have to acknowledge just sort of being aware of my own responses to what you're saying. That when you start to describe the like unhooking and rehooking up of veins, I get very squeamish. Like I just start to feel very anxious about like what you're describing, which is this major kind of surgery. Um, and I didn't even have to go through it. So like, mm-hmm. I, I want to talk to you some about the anxiety, but I want to like, I really want to get into the more of the, even the details of how you get there. So the screening process, like what are the major things that people need to like be aware of in terms of like what they could, you know, whether or not they're likely to get through the screening process. Are there any things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so to start with, I knew I wanted to do kidney paired donation. So for me, it started literally with a Google search. I just typed in, mm-hmm. you know, kidney paired donation and found a hospital near me that participated in one of the registries. There are multiple uh, of these paired donation registries out there. Uh, and then I just navigated on their website to an application and filled mm-hmm. it out and submitted it. There are a number of things just on the very first paper application. Uh, for instance, I did do this initial application five years ago when I was first interested, and I got a phone call then telling me that I would need to lose some weight before they mm-hmm. would even bring me in to start mm-hmm. talking about it. Um, so I did that in the intervening time, and that wasn't an issue this time around. Mm-hmm. But they are essentially going to do every medical test that you could think of. Uh, it included x-rays and CT scans mm-hmm. of not just my kidneys, but my entire um, abdom- abdominal area, an immense amount of blood work. Every time I was going into the office there, I was having mm-hmm. uh, a significant amount of blood drawn, uh, urine samples, all of those things. Um, and I'm going to let me ask a question here that might not make sense to certain members of our audience who don't live in America. Who pays for all of this? Is it like comped through the the program or something? It's paid eventually through the insurance of the individual that receives my kidney. I see. So it's part so of the cost on there. literally every time I went in. Mm-hmm, every time I went into the office. You know, I had to sign away my life, you know, the consent to be treated. And then when it got to the consent to pay for all this shit, they just Mm -hmm. had me write the word donor. So literally the only out-of-pocket expenses I had were driving to the hospital, which was about Mm -hmm. 30 minutes away from me, and paying for parking there. Everything Mm -hmm. else was covered. And one of the benefits of the the paired donation programs is any expenses that you should happen to incur. For instance, if you're having to travel to another hospital and stay overnight the night before, they reimburse mm-hmm. those kinds of travel costs. But for me, the cost was uh, taking time in the middle of my work day to go to all these appointments mm-hmm. and, you know, eight bucks for parking here and there. And the loss of a kidney, and I think that's some follow-up issues. Obviously, obviously we'll talk about. Right. So there's a little bit more than the, than the travel, but yeah. So so that's good to know. At least I was I was curious about that. Um, so, you know, what do they tell you when you're getting screened and stuff about like the nature of this totally voluntary invasive procedure, right? Like, um, do they tell you like? what the impacts are going to be of only having one kidney. What do those look like? You know, what additional risks are you kind of facing as a result of um, being in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that's very interesting about my experience specifically here, I think as Americans, mm-hmm. we're very used to the idea that you would walk into the doctor and get 20 seconds of FaceTime uh, for whatever mm-hmm. your need of the day is and then they're out the door. Uh, But in this case, the doctors and the entire team there, which is much larger than just doctors, they spent a tremendous amount of time speaking with me, going over all of Mm -hmm. the informed consent issues, the possible complications immediately from the surgery, and then also what the impacts would be later in life. Uh, Obviously it is a major surgery. They're, you know, taking a piece out of your body. So there are risks there, 
Uh, mm -hmm. You do also have diminished kidney function for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, but your kidney function is greater than 50%. The kidney that's left does step up and start working mm -hmm. harder than a baseline uh -huh. kidney. So you're mm -hmm. about 75 or 80% capacity. And that's actually still more capacity than what your body needs to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. And there is some data that shows you might have a greater risk for kidney disease later in life. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's also the case that kidney donors as a group tend to live longer and healthier lives than the general mm -hmm. public. Now, obviously, there is a lot of selection bias going into that because you uh -huh. were at one time healthy enough to donate a kidney. Uh, but it does at least demonstrate that the the burden it places on your body long term is not so great that it's clearly detrimental. Are there any other like changes to your behavior that you feel like you are having to incorporate because of this in terms of like changes to diet or amount of exercise you're getting or things like that? Uh, the six weeks of recovery aside, mm -hmm. the biggest one is that I can no longer take ibuprofen because that's mm. filtered through the kidneys. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll be keeping an eye on my blood pressure for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I drink I, and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. I feel today like I did the day before my surgery. Mm -hmm. Are there like, are you at a higher risk of like, look, if your other kidney, if something goes wrong with your other kidney, you don't have this backup now, right? Or is that not, not as big a concern because like most things that mess up kidney function mess up both the kidneys? It's a risk in one sense. Uh, they don't want me doing any skydiving or bungee jumping, anything like that. Uh, you know, no jumping around sharp objects. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, if I should be deep sea diving and a shark bites my one good kidney, uh, I'm a little <laughs> fucked in that case. <laughs> Some Hannibal Lecter shark shows up. That'd be a real bummer. So, <laughs> but do you have to like uh, cut down I on develop... like red meat or things like that? Do you have to like worry about because you said blood pressure? So, are you like generally having to think about healthier eating or is it like as much as one would in their growing older anyway? I suppose generally, no. And like I said, mm -hmm. I, I went through a years long process of losing weight, so I was kind of already doing most of those things. Uh, though I don't, I don't don't do very much avoiding red meat or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and interesting also there that you are a utilitarian and you feel ethically obligated enough to donate a kidney in this way. Um, but I guess aren't, aren't motivated towards vegetarianism. And I'm not, I'm not judging. I think it's actually just interesting in the ways in which we, different people feel compelled to try to re reduce suffering in different ways. Absolutely. Um, I did say I was a utilitarian. I didn't say I was good at it. And uh, <laughs> no, to be fair, it's not a success term or anything. Right? We're all and, and we're you were all asking sinners. about you asked about some ulterior motives. I certainly feel like I maybe gave myself a bit of a hall pass on <laughs> some of uh, the other shitty things I do. We have a whole term for I'm trying to think of terms for that now. There's a specific ethics term for individuals sort of feeling, oh, I've done a good deed, so now I can do this other bad thing because I've like earned this kind of ethical credit uh, in that way. So that's a common psychological um, behavior, actually. You're not alone on that one. Um, so how does the uh, procedure then go for you, right? So I, let me actually, let me ask you this first, like all of this philosophizing aside, when you get the call, right? Like you're on this list and stuff. And then like one day, what is it like a text message or something that they're like, time to time to show up and, and donate the kidney and what was your sort of emotional and like psychological reaction to actually it becoming real in that way mm -hmm. uh, so I did have two separate moments like that so there was the first mm -hmm. one where I was approved as a kidney donor and at that point I was added to the registry and once my file mm -hmm. was entered you know, their algorithms would be searching to find someone that would potentially be a match for me. And mm -hmm. when we get into some of the how long that components of all you? of this, um, yeah, so I, I happened to have O negative blood and I was negative mm. for all of the different antibody tests. So I, uh, by dint of luck, managed to grow essentially a universal piece of meat <laughs> that could go in uh -huh. anyone. 
And so, so you're saying if we were to clone time. you, we could just mass produce a lot of very useful kidneys is what you're saying. Yeah. And you would make a lot of people happy if you were successful in that. Okay. Um, it's good to know. Just pencil that. <laughs> yeah. So that second phone call was, we have a match and we have a date set. And mm-hmm. they were both tremendously exciting. Um, I I believe I cried uh, with the second phone call. It was very hmm. rewarding just to hear that. That's so interesting. So you didn't have like a like a sense of fear or like a what have I done kind of response. It was actually sort of a, a joyous reaction in that way. Right, uh, and that may be pure stupidity on my part, but I did not feel <laughs> no, <laughs> the level not, of trepidation. I don't judge you I at all. Have. No, it's it's more. You know, I had this experience with Lou these you know seven years ago where she got really sick, and like it really messed with my sense of like I think a lot of this stuff, and I have a lot of anxiety around. Uh, our our medical system as a result and so the idea of sort of jumping for joy at at being engaged with the medical system at such a severe level is just totally alien to me in in a lot of ways like um, if that makes any kind of sense so it's just interesting to me and I I think I feel like a lot of people might have initially a kind of anxiety reaction like that so it's it's interesting to me that Mm -hmm. you felt sort of I mean, I guess, I guess it's a good sign that you were sort of really doing it for the right reasons in that kind of, I'm not, not to say, actually, I don't want to put it that way because I think it'd be perfectly valid to have that kind of um, anxious reaction and still be doing it for the kinds of right reasons. Or you don't have to have that kind of jump for joy response. I'm just, I think it's a very interesting reaction to have had. Yeah. And I will say, I said, I wanted to come on here and encourage folks to put their ethics in action and share the experience I had with kidney donation I absolutely don't expect that people should feel like they should donate their kidney also. Mm. It is extremely difficult. And I will say also that I was trading on a whole lot of my own moral luck to be able to do that uh, mm-hmm. in terms of my own good health, the the mental composition or the mental defect that allowed me to not feel anxious in that circumstance. <laughs> if you are someone that has... Uh, an aversion to needles or to blood. This is not the thing for you because there are plenty of both of those things. Uh Um, I also ended up leaning very heavily on a support structure that I'm lucky enough to have, but I certainly Mm -hmm. didn't lose sight of the fact that uh, it was luck that provided that with me. Uh, And even a job that, that was flexible enough to allow for the time off and the resources to be able to do something like this that did result in uh for myself over four weeks of time where i was not working yeah so this was i think is really valuable is this attachment of like the way that we recognize in which being able to do something like this especially in our particular system involves a kind of privilege right because even setting aside the like needles and blood stuff right part of my anxiety would be like i'm i'm putting myself in a state of slightly less reliability in terms of my own personal you know meat wagon you know continuing to function right in a system where i don't believe in the healthcare system well at all right i just don't trust our healthcare system i don't trust that like when the time comes that like i have a situation and need help that like the insurance will be there or something like that. And I can think that a lot of people could deal with like that kind of anxiety and then like not having an assurance that if five years down the line, they're suffering severe consequences from this, that they're going to be taken care of in any reliable um, kind of way. Did you, do you wrestle with those concerns at all as well going through this? To some extent, yes. I will say that the organizations involved here, like the National Kidney Registry that I donated Mm -hmm. through, uh, they put a lot of time and resources into doing all that they can to insulate you from those concerns. Hmm. But I do think it's also worth noting that the person receiving the kidney is way, way in the deep end of all of that already. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I was taking on some amount of exposure to it for sure but it was also providing the opportunity for another individual to come out of that. 
Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's, uh, you know, it's hard. I, cause, I mean, what you were saying earlier I thought was um, a little funny because you and I have gone back and forth quite a bit on ethics and, and, and specifically on the question of whether there are such things as super erogatory actions, whether there is something that is a moral thing to do that goes above and beyond what we can ask of people. Um, and I believe in the past mm-hmm. you've been somewhat skeptical of that category, but it sounds like you are saying, at least in our American system, right, this is not something that you could demand of every person as a moral obligation, though it is a good thing for everyone to do who feels sufficiently privileged to do so. Right. I I am still skeptical of this super erogatory category as a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it and it, it could be the case again, I'm not an academic philosopher or anything mm-hmm. like that. It seems to posit that there is some finish line of where you have achieved your ethical obligation to the people around you. And then it, mm-hmm. uh, it would say that you're going beyond even that. And I just don't see where that finish line exists. You know, uh, as an atheist, it's certainly not coming from on high. And mm-hmm. if we want to say that it's something that's socially constructed, I would hope we could at least agree that what we have constructed at this point sucks and is not right. Mm-hmm. We owe mm-hmm. more to each other than what is currently asked of us. Mm-hmm. And once you take away that clear finish line, I I don't know where you say you've done enough or even if you can. Mm-hmm. So would you then say for someone in a position relevantly like yourself that has the kind of advantages and privileges that you feel have made it possible for you to do this in a functional way, that they have a moral obligation to consider doing something like this, to strongly consider doing something like this? I think if you want to do good in the world, this is a good thing to do. Uh, again, you know, the the concept of an obligation feels fuzzy to me because I'm not quite sure who uh, is obligating it. it are we, hmm. is that demand coming from each other? Well, I've been curious. For me, for I feel you, like. Yeah. Like where, where do you feel the demand came from to do this thing, right? Did you feel a demand or like how do you how would you even phrase the kind of fundamental motivating force here in that way i i would consider it a demand but i think it was an internal one i want to do good in the world Mm -hmm. and this was a way that i could do it and there's to me it's not a binary it's a spectrum there's not mm-hmm. either you're a good person doing enough or you're a bad person not doing enough. There's always more good that can be done and doing more is better. And that's just true in every case. Do you worry about turning into a utility pump uh, with that kind of like, do you feel like there is a point where you're like, I mean, I guess you, you, it comes back to the kind of trade off things that you were saying earlier, right? Where, um, you've done some good here, which doesn't mean that you then necessarily have to do a bunch of other good necessarily in every other place. Right. I, you know, I'm not physically able to do all of the good in the world. I think Mm -hmm. I could be doing more than I am now. I would like to Mm -hmm. be doing more. Uh, But the other side of this coin of there not being a finish line is there also doesn't have to be a harsh judgment of not doing enough. I always mm-hmm. want to do more, uh, but I don't have to pass judgment on myself for not having done no. enough. Fair enough. Um, let's get back into the, the concrete here a little bit. So we, we left off at your sort of getting getting to the actual surgery, and I'm curious what the surgery was like in terms of a um, severity of like the seriousness of this kind of surgery. Have you had any major surgeries before that you could compare it to, or was this like the first kind of um, procedure like this for you? Mm -hmm. So it is a major abdominal surgery. You're under full general anesthesia. It's also at least started as a laparoscopic procedure. Mm -hmm. So what I was told to expect is that I would have three incisions and eventually three scars 
uh, two small ones mm -hmm. on my side, uh, on the side of my body where the kidney was taken, which for me was the left side. And then a each of those was about an inch long, so a few centimeters. Mm -hmm. And then a longer one that was about three inches below my belly button, which is where the kidney was actually uh, pulled mm -hmm. out of my body. In terms like, of the hospital stay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like how, roughly, roughly how long did that process take and, and you know, what was your recovery? Because my understanding was you didn't necessarily have the maximally smoothest recovery process. Right. Definitely. So the way it should go generally is the way it started for me. So I showed up very early in the morning. I was the very first surgery of the day. And part of that is being part of this paired donation program because my kidney had a flight to catch that entire chain that I described earlier. Like I said, uh -huh. it right. all happened in a single day, which is very impressive to me. Mm -hmm. um, so went through all the basic surgery prep, you know, spoke with the anesthesiology team, spoke with the surgeon, uh, got prepped, got the, the super fun drugs and went under. The surgery itself took a few hours, I believe three or four hours. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember it. Mm -hmm. And I woke up, I, I want to say around lunchtime. Mm -hmm. And the surgery happened on a Wednesday. I spent Wednesday night in the hospital. And then I was discharged myself Thursday mm -hmm. afternoon. So it was, mm -hmm. they call that two days in the hospital. Uh, to me, I would call that one day. It was a little more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. and, and that's then you were fairly sort of typical. laid up for a while. Right. So the typical recovery would be two to three days in the hospital. So one to two nights in the hospital then go home. Um, spend about a week sleeping, kind of feeling like shit, and then start feeling gradually better after that. The idea was I planned to be able to return to work after two weeks because my job is work from home. It's just sitting, you know, in a chair mm -hmm. in my home, staring at a computer screen. I figured <laughs> I could handle it at two weeks. And then, you know, they mark time in weeks. You know, at this point you can get out and move around more. And then by six weeks, you're considered to be fully recovered. And mm -hmm. that's generally what the trajectory looks like for a patient. Uh, in my case, unfortunately, things were a little different. Uh, I continued to feel exhausted and unwell mm -hmm. for about two weeks. I was having difficulty eating. I just wasn't feeling hungry. I occasionally had nausea and was vomiting. And right around that two week mark was when I was supposed to have a follow-up appointment mm -hmm. anyway. And they, I had made them aware of my symptoms. So when I had that follow-up appointment, they scheduled a CT scan for me again, just to look mm -hmm. at things and see how they were doing. Um, they saw some things that looked troubling with my bowels. Mm -hmm. And they had me stay overnight in the hospital, which I was not excited to do, <laughs> having just gotten out. Yeah. Uh, the following day, they had me uh, drink a uh, contrast dye and do another CT scan. And at that mm -hmm. point, they identified what was most likely a small perforation in my bowel. Mm -hmm. And that required in a second emergency surgery at that point. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it was a bit of a wild experience to spend two weeks waiting around, spend a night in the hospital waiting around. And then all of a sudden it was, you're having another surgery in 30 minutes. Right. And that one, like, I assume, you know, again, under, and then like, were you stuck in the hospital for a little while recovering from that one as well? How, how invasive, how, how hard was it to repair that sort of tear? So unfortunately the second surgery for me was much more difficult than the first. They uh -huh. reopened the first incision, the larger one under my belly button to look around. And once they did look around and identify the issue, um, they had to enlarge the incision. So now it goes from just above my belly button 
all the way uh-huh. down to my waist. So it's about six and a half inches long now. Mm-hmm. And as part of that surgery, they repaired the whole, they also removed about 30 centimeters of my intestine, wow. which turns out is not a big deal. Cause you have about, <laughs> you've got extra six, you have, I can't remember 30 feet or something enormous like right. that. Um, it was it's not, not a like a kidney. You could, you could donate that stuff all day long. And it wouldn't <laughs> be a big deal. Yeah. I, that is actually literally true. The kidney surgery was so much easier. Too bad um, nobody needs any intestines. <laughs> certainly not that they just threw it out. Yeah. Uh, so that second surgery, I spent, uh, counting the observation the night before a total of five nights in the hospital mm-hmm. and they were much more unpleasant than the first. I had a tube, a tube that went down my nose and into my Ugh. stomach because they had to constantly pump out the contents of my stomach. So that nothing would go let through my entire, oh, exactly. Leave the entire system empty. Uh, so you were just like starving the whole two time. Two different lines. You know, eating was kind of the last thing on my mind at that point. Fair, fair. <laughs> Until later on. But yeah, I did spend, you know, at that point, I had spent several weeks not really being able to eat anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, yes, it, it was. So some additional dieting involved in this process. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It got me over my weight loss goal. You know, that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um the the pain was pretty severe i i had one of those lovely little morphine buttons that i made Mm. great use of i've heard they're quick they're great Uh, fun when you can get them yeah until (laughs) i think about the second day of having it my surgeon came in and she was like you know the thing we're waiting on is for your bowels to wake back up and start working and that pain medicine actually does the opposite yeah that's not so good yeah (laughs) Do you ever want to go to the bathroom again? <laughs> I also had uh, two. They were almost like long metal tubes that went straight into the incision, and they were constantly mm-hmm. pumping in local anesthetic. Hmm, that's uh, special. You know, I had I had the IV drips going on. I mm-hmm. I was connected to you know eight different things. It was You're it was not a fun cyborg. experience. Right. Right. But as I discussed with you in messages, it was actually another great opportunity to put some of the philosophy concepts in action. Um, yeah. In this case, I, I, I kind of felt anxiety. like a master stoic. Yeah, I was curious. Was it going to be stoicism that was helping you with mm-hmm. your anxiety? Or like, how did you how did you perceive that anxiety? And then what were the, the things that helped calm it down? Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, anxiety was not what I felt in that mm. time. Um, I figured I woke up from the second surgery. So the hard part was over mm-hmm. and really so the main the thought that it was, it was discomfort is the mildest word you could possibly okay. use for it. Fair enough. <laughs> um, it, it was not a fun few days, but I would say the thought that got me through it more than any was that, um, my mental state was not going to make it any better, you know, sitting there griping in my head, how unfair it was that mm-hmm. I tried to do this nice thing and I got punished for it. That wasn't mm-hmm. going to get me anywhere. That wasn't going to make me happier. Um, you know, what was going to get me through it was trying to stay positive. And there's a very fine line here between actually feeling that way and like toxic positivity, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, Buck up, just just think happy thoughts, um, right? And it can honestly, I don't think another person can draw that line for you. You have to find it yourself. Uh, but I'm again fortunate that I feel like I was able to find it and find things to smile about when I was in that hospital room. And let me speaking of that sort of long dark uh, night of the soul kind of stuff. I just realized you're doing this in the middle of COVID. Right. Yes. Like how, how did that impact your like could people come and visit you or were you a lot of people I've known who've been in hospital in the past year, like had very limited or no visitation uh, kind of situations. Mm-hmm. So were you dealing with a lot of this on your own most of the time? 
I was alone most of the time in the room, but I was also mm-hmm. sleeping most of the time, so it wasn't mm-hmm. a huge deal. It did have some impact. You weren't alone because uh, you had the morphine drip, I understand. <laughs> That's right. My friend Morphine, they're with me the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was definitely the case, first of all, that getting vaccinated was one of the things that made me feel like it was time that I could do the donation in the first place. Uh, mm-hmm. I had to be COVID tested before both surgeries. So there are a lot of precautions in place there. Uh, mm-hmm. Visitation, it, it was not the case that I couldn't have visitors. For instance, my parents were able to come visit me in the hospital. There mm-hmm. were restrictions around the time, obviously. And then also children weren't allowed to visit below a certain age. So my daughter was not able to visit me. That was mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. the hardest part, not not just for me, but also for her. Yeah, I can imagine. So like, speaking about your daughter and your sort of situation a little bit, I think it's always important how much like support networks and caregivers and things are to like the success of these kinds of projects. What was your situation in terms of support? And like, what would you say for individuals who are thinking about this in terms of what kind of support networks they want to get in place ahead of time? Mm -hmm. So I'm very fortunate that my parents live here in town with me and we get along great. And after both surgeries, I spent several nights staying with them, just Mm -hmm. even though I was sleeping most of the time, uh, I think we all felt more comfortable with a set of eyes on me that ended up being more important than we hoped it would. Mm -hmm. Um, For my daughter, you know, she stayed with her mom, who is my ex-wife, and Mm -hmm. uh, she was able to be cared for that way. I will say that is actually part of the screening process to meet with a social worker who will walk through all of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my case, I fully expected that I would be jumping back up on my feet within a week and jogging around the neighborhood and, Mm -hmm. you know, back to work in no time. And it doesn't always go that way, uh, Mm -hmm. as I learned the hard way. Um, (laughs) But Never too late to learn a lesson about hubris, isn't it? (laughs) Right. And uh, (laughs) a lesson about probabilities, for sure. That's I think right. the overall odds of a complication like mine, it's roughly 1% for all abdominal surgeries. Oh. Well, that's really and, good to uh, know, actually. I think even how much time we've spent on your experience, it's good to remember that this is a mm-hmm. uh, very unlikely experience that most people, uh, unlike you, will just sort of uh, manage no problem and get back to things, right? Right. Yeah. I definitely don't want my experience to discourage other people if they're considering it. You know, Mm -hmm. I rolled that D100 and it came up zero. So what are the odds it would happen to you, too? Right. My understanding of fallacies (laughs) is that since you did that, the next 99 people will be fine. Absolutely. That's my understanding as well. (laughs) And as we established, I'm very good at assessing this. Right. Exactly. Um, so as we are getting up on end of time here, I'm, I did want to ask you one other sort of philosophically oriented question about, you know, you and I have discussed meta ethics quite a bit as well. Um, and you've been, I think, persistently skeptical of the moral realist position. And the answer here could be absolutely no. Um, but I'm curious if this experience has like not necessarily made you a moral realist, but like impacted at all in any way, sort of your thinking about issues around meta ethics and not just normative ethics. Mm -hmm. Uh, At this point, I would say that, yes, I am a moral realist, although Mm -hmm. I think my position on it is slightly different than yours. I think uh, Mm -hmm. while you can make objective... Yeah, you can make objective statements about what is moral or immoral, uh, but I don't believe that exists independent of conscious beings. Mm-hmm. And I'm very sympathetic to that view. I, I do dip my toes in the um, intrinsic value of things that might not necessarily relate to the well-being of sentient entities. Um, but I realize that that may be a, a, a woo bridge too far for some uh, individuals like yourselves. I'm just happy to hear that uh, the idea of objective morality maybe is not necessarily as alien to you um, as it might have been when we started our journey together. Yeah, absolutely. And we are both uh, huge fans of the novel Anathem. And so I'm mm-hmm. always happy to dip my toes in those waters. 
That's right. There's something something quite nice about the idea that there might be things. And it's not just nice. I do think there is something to that. But I think for our purposes here, right, this is a fairly straight, a more straightforward discussion about um, the ability to help others. Um, yeah, I, I, the only thing that I still end up getting caught up on, and like this is where I struggle a lot with like the altruism, effective altruism stuff these days is this feeling of like it's hard to ask much of people who are in a system that is so sort of exploitative and unreliable at the moment that like so many people I know are just not in a situation like remotely like that kind of position. And it's it's frustrating because I think, you know, there's a lot of like like the, the synergies that you're describing here with these chains of um, donations, like the amount of synergy that could be achieved there if everybody felt comfortable enough in their positions to be on these registries is obviously pretty substantial um and yet we are instead in this situation where we have to wait for somebody with magical genie you know genie kidneys like yourself to um sort of complete those chains in that way yeah it absolutely is difficult and i think we touched on this earlier that i don't feel that anyone that's not able to do something like donating a kidney. They're not failing morally. Uh, doing good is going to be better. Not doing good is not as good. Uh, but just like there's not a finish line that you can reach and say, I am good enough now, in my view, you also can't look at your neighbor and say, you are bad because you're not mm -hmm. doing enough. So I would always want to encourage those around me to do more if they're able. Um, I wouldn't want to judge them if they are not able. And I mm -hmm. think one of the best things you can do when you're encouraging your neighbor is also see if there's a way that you can help them and help mm -hmm. get them into a position where they could also be doing something. That's a good point. Are there other resources that you would recommend we've touched on sort of stoicism a little bit here and you've mentioned moral luck and things like that are there other resources around this community of um you know kidney donation and such that uh you you have found helpful in your own journey uh absolutely so all of the nuts and bolts of how kidney paired donation works and the information we touched on about, you know, outcomes for donors and all of those things. You can mm -hmm. find that kind of information on pages like the page for the National Kidney Registry, which is kidneyregistry.org. Uh, if folks wanted to learn more about effective altruism more broadly, my mm -hmm. personal favorite resource for that is the charity 80,000 Hours. Mm -hmm. And I believe their website is 80,000 hours uh, as the number dot uh, org. There is a, a tremendous amount of material well. on there. Yes, they do have a podcast. Yeah, I, I hesitate to plug a podcast on a podcast. Oh, it's but OK. They they are <laughs> they are one of my favorites. And I think they uh, there's a lot of information there, but consuming mm -hmm. some of it will begin to give you a sense of Kind of the contours of effective altruism as a movement mm -hmm. we and this is good because we just had our conversation about effective altruism and long-termism um and this i think is an interesting contrast to the long-termism discussion because it's not like your kidney is necessarily helping a billion people deep into the future right this is a very sort of concrete um, you know, helping a particular group or of small, you know, small group of individuals, relatively speaking, but helping them in a uh, fairly profound way. Um, and that can still be sort of a big part of our effective altruism practice, right? Right. And I think that the, the picture that some folks paint of long-termism versus mm -hmm. helping people in immediate need is in a lot of ways a false dichotomy. And I think this mm -hmm. is a great example because uh, my small act that I did in donating a kidney right now to one person who needed it uh, is also an opportunity to have a broader conversation with a large number of people. And maybe a few of them will look into it and maybe uh, get interested in helping the short term or the long term future of humanity. 
Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be with a kidney or anything like that, right? It just is to sort of mm -hmm. to get that itch or urge to improve things a little bit in any sort of way. Absolutely. All right. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with folks who are sort of picking up what you're putting down uh, before I uh, turn the tables on you here? Uh, one last thing I wanted to say real quick is mm -hmm. a lot of folks have talked about the kidney donation as something that I did to help other people. Uh, mm -hmm. But the thing that always pops in my head in response to that is that all I did was stay still while other people did their jobs. You know, mm -hmm. I agreed <laughs> to lie still and get poked and prodded. And that was one of the things that helped me, especially in recovery, was to just sit back and watch all the people mm -hmm. busting their ass to do the actual hard work of making the world a better place. So I I didn't want to end this conversation without pointing that out. Mm. All praise be to modern medicine, right? Yes. And science. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Maybe a um, little well, more than uh, American medicine. <laughs> Right, right. But I get what you're saying. Um, okay, so you've you've made me squirm a lot here by having to t hear about medical procedures and whatnot. Um, so now, of course, I get to make you squirm uh, with the enlightening rounds. Enlightenment comes from within. So as a longtime listener of the show, you know how this goes. Um, I'm going, but for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real? or not real, um, you don't get to hedge, right? You don't get to do any sort of trying to explain what you mean by real, etc. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I assume you've been training for this pretty heavily. So I'm looking forward to seeing seeing how, how all of your training breaks down immediately under pressure. All it means is I already know which ones I have no good answer for. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's find out which ones you don't know the answer to. So, first of all, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So, let's find out which things are real. Is the external world real or not real? Real. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Not real selves or persons real genders real <laughs> races not real <laughs> species real morality real rights not real Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Well, we do live in one, so real. <laughs> Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Not real. <laughs> Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? This is the vaguest one. Uh... <laughs> Choose your own adventure. <laughs> Real. Beauty? Not real. Love? Real. Causality? Real. And finally, time? Real. All right, you survived. How do you feel? I feel great. Better or worse than the surgeries? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> It's a different kind Much of better. torture, I suppose. Yeah, okay. I noticed there was mostly just a little bit of hesitancy around the socially constructed area and a little bit around the topology. Um, interesting sort of pressure points there. Right. I felt like for it to be real, we have to be consistent in how we construct it. That was uh -huh. my little heuristic for it. Okay. Well, that's an interesting way to put it.
Well, Alex, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your story. Um, is there anything you want to promote while you're here? Uh, well, I don't have a Twitter or a podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congratulations on that. But if you did want to have a com- <laughs> Thank you. I'm very proud. Yeah. Uh, if you did want to have a conversation with me, the place you could find me is the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, which is an awesome group full of awesome people. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, sharing dank philosophy memes there's also the other group if you know you know Mm, yeah and to be fair no one who joins the philosophy group is going to end up in a bathtub full of ice without stealing your kidneys or anything like that it's very we're very consent oriented about the whole kidney thing no one's going to hit you up for kidneys so uh come join us and this isn't that kind of cult no it is definitely not that kind of cult um well alex thanks so much this has been a lot of fun thanks aaron I will see you at that thing, you know, the thing that we're later, the thing. Yep, nod, nod, wink, wink. <laughs> there it is. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Rasterisk. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lauren Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Need More Camus and other Fossil Vega driving philosophers. Ooh, sorry, the freedom menu was only till 11 a.m. And all the thanks to our top tier Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And maybe you could even subscribe to both and leave them a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, know this in your kidney. You are the void and the void is you. 